Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and it's a huge pleasure for me to welcome Joshka Fisher to the school for this year's Oakshot Memorial Lecture. Uh, before I uh, introduce Joshka Fisher, who doesn't need a lot of introduction from me, um, could I just say that these lectures uh, are sponsored uh, by Professor Richard Sennett and his family foundation in honor um, of Michael Oakeshott, uh, who was here at the school uh, for a number of years. And so he, his tradition is uh, perpetuated here in these lectures. Now, this evening's lecture is on Asia and Russia in the age of globalization, the impact for Europe's future. But in fact, in our conversation in the green room a few moments ago, uh, Mr. Fisher kindly said that, of course, he knows that there are other things on people's minds, like the end of the world and that stuff, <laughs> um, and that uh, he's quite happy that in questions we range more broadly, the impact on Europe of the crisis, and particularly on Germany, uh, so I give you that license uh, to ask questions on a more broader canvas, if you would like. But. Um, I don't think I should delay you much longer uh, before asking him to speak. He was, of course, for many years uh, Germany's foreign secretary um, in the uh, Schroeder government, uh, but stepped down when the grand coalition uh, took over, uh, and so, of course, um, is now able to speak more freely. I have discovered, <laughs> I've discovered it's an iron rule at the LSE that former politicians are a lot more interesting than current politicians, and I'm sure we're not going to be disappointed this evening. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure and honor um, to give uh, here in uh, such a prestigious uh, alma mater um, the Oxshot Memorial Lecture today. Let me start with a short remark about your introduction. It's not true that uh, acting politicians are more boring than uh, former politicians. It's more boring to listen to them <laughs> because it's not so important what they will tell you. You have to look for their actions. Therefore, it might be more interesting to listen to a has-been, but it's more boring to see his actions. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, it's the second time in my life. I'm born in 48, so I'm now 60. It's the second time in my life that I experienced a real world revolution. You know I was a very radical student, but uh, <coughs> it never happened during my radical decade. This was ideological based and uh, this was not uh, a good idea. But it happened in November 9th, 1989. The only world revolution which communism really could uh, 
produced was when it disappeared. It sounds highly ironic, but I'm very serious about that. Because with the end of communism, a whole world system disappeared, the bipolar system. When I'm talking about the bipolar system, I tell them, especially to the young students here in the audience, I was born into this bipolar system in 48. I grew up, and even as a radical or as an adult person, for me, the reality in the divided Germany was, and I lived for 31 years as an adult person in Frankfurt, that 90 kilometers east of Frankfurt, my world ended and a very different world started. This was the dividing line, the iron curtain between east and west. And when the Soviet Union disappeared and the bipolar system disappeared, it was a real world revolution. When we speak about globalization, there were some events which were not directly linked to that historical moment when the wall came down 20 years ago. When Deng Xiaoping decided to pursue a policy of the four modernizations. The bipolar system still existed, it was in the 70s. This was the great awakening of modern China, the end of Maoism. And China, step by step, opened up and became an actor on the global stage. But definitely, the real push for globalization came after 1989. The invention of uh, PCs, of the internet, was also not linked to the end of the Cold War. But it defined a global reality beyond the West after the end of the bipolar system. So what I want to explain is that what you know as your reality, that there is one world, and especially there is one global virtual reality, that communication and information today is everywhere that the dreams people are dreaming are more or less the same. That there is not any longer a battle between two systems, also ideologically. This is a result of a world revolution at the end of the 20th century. And since then, in this seemingly borderless world, Globalization was the driving engine. And globalization means very different experiences, whether you are part of the West or whether you are part of a rising power, an emerging market. For the emerging markets, globalization means mostly opportunities. For the 
old economies in the West mostly concerns. And once communism disappeared, everybody thought about, not in an ideological way, but in a very practical, everyday way, now we have reached the era of the end of history. History disappeared. We believe in one ideology with a different historical and cultural background, of course, means the free market, individual freedom, consumption. And what we realize now is a sort of the second fall of the Berlin Wall. This time, not for the eastern part of the bipolar system, but for the western part. I experienced, I repeat that, twice within the last 20 years. I should have known it, but I, my creativity was not big enough to think that modern capitalism is based on a global Ponzi scheme. And that's in fact what is the reality. Of course there are important differences. The Soviet system was a dictatorship, completely inflexible, was not able to adjust to an existential crisis of the whole system. And the Western market economy system will adjust. I'm sure about that. But when we look to the outfall of these crises, and I'm sure this will be a, a long-lasting and very severe global crisis, there is no quick fix from my point of view. Um, this will transform the reality in a similar way, the political global reality as the collapse of the Soviet Union has transformed the global system in the past. <coughs> there were some very important developments, trends, uh, which were linked to globalization, which will not disappear. I think the basic trend towards globalization, and this means that a growing part of mankind will enter the world market so we are transforming from a minority project, think back to 72 when the Club of Rome presented its study about uh, the limits of growth. At that time, 800 million to 1 billion people were part of the world market. Today, we are talking about three or even more with the tendency to four or five in the midst of the century. When we talk about uh, global poverty, all success stories in the past decade in the fight against uh, poverty around the globe is based on the economic development in emerging markets, especially in China and some other huge countries. China and if you look to the figures, it's easy to realize what happened. 
China is moving forward to global power. China has serious problems. One of the problems, I think, the major problems is whether the Chinese will first get rich or old because the demographic impact of their one-child policy will be tremendous for uh, the future of Chinese power. The question of regional integration or disintegration in that country is also closely linked to economic growth. And uh, the management of the transformation of this huge country with 1.2 billion people needs an average growth rate of 10% for the decade. Otherwise, the social frictions, the economic problems, corruption, the outfall of a one-party system, the regional problems will be hard to be managed in a peaceful way. So China has severe problems. But from my point of view, the Chinese leadership is one of the very few around the globe which are acting strategically and are playing a long ball. So this is also a great opportunity. And I don't see globalization as a negative trend. I see it very positive. Because it means also more opportunities for people who had to live in the past for $2 or $1 or less per day. What we see in this period is a transformation of power and wealth from west to east. And this trend will not only continue, but my prediction is that this trend will accelerate in this crisis. If you walk through the corridors of power in Washington nowadays, and even before, everybody is talking about China. It's not any longer Europe. It's the Northeast Pacific Rim. They are also the big borrowers with China, Japan, and South Korea. And if you add India, Indonesia, and Southeast Asia to that region, then I think from a European point of view, we should be aware what this will mean for us. Once again, do not misinterpret my words. I'm in favor full-heartedly of this process. Because who are we that we can say, it's nice for us as long as we can live in our welfare states with good jobs, good perspective, generation by generation, better educated, with better perspectives. As long as this defines the global reality, we are for globalization. We have no moral right to deny the same standards to people 
in China, India, Asia, Africa, Latin America. And it would not work also in terms of uh, power politics. Because globalization is defined, first of all, by the size of the people, the borderless markets, and new technologies. In 1929, this was only a crisis for Europe and America, and very few others. At that time, the majority of the states of today, members of the UN system, didn't exist. The majority of the people around the globe were excluded from information, education, political decisions, political processes. This has also dramatically changed. Information today is everywhere. Access to information is key and everywhere. So we have a much more politicized global reality, but even more in this process, which I tried to describe in a few words, there is a new power, new power emerged. And this means a global interconnectivity. If I would have told you 15, 20 years before, which I couldn't, but if I would have said it to you or to your predecessors, 20 years ago, one day communist China, still a communist power in the self-definition, the People's Republic of China. Communist China and capitalist superpower US will be in a very odd relationship. That the US will open them, its domestic market to Chinese goods that China could really develop its economy, and China will finance the huge defense budget included of the United States, would finance the role of the superpower. Not exclusive, but a vast, vast contribution. Everybody would have said, you are crazy. But this is the reality today. So, ladies and gentlemen, what we see here is a new power, and this means interconnectivity. And the new power is also based on new challenges. And these new challenges have created the power of the poor. Take, for example, the global climate. You can't fight wars against the major polluters, so-called green wars. It would make no sense. As poor the people are, as the more they will destroy their environment, their forests, their natural heritage, as more they will destroy um, and endanger the climate. So whether we like it or not, it's a question 
this new interconnectivity, which gives the less developed countries, the less developed econo economies, the poorer people, more power than the rich. In the old days, the people in the Belletage were connected to the poor people in the basements. But it was not such an interconnectivity as it used to be today. There is a strong political impact of this new interconnectivity. And therefore, I don't believe that uh, with 6.7 billion people, with these new information environment, global information environment, um, a new separation will have a, a future in this crisis. I see this as a very <coughs> positive or optimistic element that this interconnectivity will force us, if we don't like it, will force us into the new concept in the global system, and this means cooperation. There's a lot of discussion about, in the 21st century, China and the US will fight about the dominant role um, as global power. Now, what should they fight about? Who has the right to pollute more the environment? To emit more CO2 into the atmosphere? It makes no sense. Even fight about or war about resources makes less and less sense based on the new global interconnectivity. If one side of this uh, new equation will be destroyed, the other side will lose too. So what we see also is the merging of a new world system. That's the good news, the bad news is. When we talked about the old system, the bipolar system, the price were, was extremely high. It started in the August of 1914 and ended in Western Europe, 1989, and definitely in Europe with the end of the Balkan Wars 10 years later. The price Europe has to pay for, at the end, a democratic, peaceful, <coughs> new state system was extremely high. And this is the bad message. If you analyze the present situation, we see very different reactions. China will be a key player and its role will be more important after the end of this crisis than before, definitely. And if you look to the distribution of power, G8 is out, G20 or G16 or G25, whatever it will be at the end is in. G8 makes no sense anymore. In America, we had, uh, I lived in America during the Heiligen Damm summit, which was big fuss in Germany our chancellor was the new world leader and so on. 
There was no reaction in America. First of all, George W. Bush was an outgoing president. The majority of Americans thought, thanks God, and acted in that way. And secondly, this is not an important summit any longer because China, India, and some others are not there. So this reflects also the distribution of power. And if you look to the US today, as I said before, it was not by chance that Hillary Clinton made her first trip to Asia. Now what does that mean for Europe? America acted in uh, a wonderful way. The last election was not only an election about the next president. The last election was in the midst of the most severe crisis of the country, of the nation, since 1929. It was a decision about whether America can reinvent itself, yes or no. And Obama means reinvention, with all the problems, the difficulties. But America started to reinvent itself. China. I don't know how far they will reinvent themselves, but they will move forward. And this means also a certain form of reinvention. And neither China nor India, and I speak about Russia later, but neither Russia nor the US nor whoever has the European problem. Whether they will make it or not, it will be Russia, it will be China, it will be the US, it will be India. Only Europe is a work in progress. We are not a firm body. We are not a state and will not be a state. We are a developing form of a new state system which is not an alternative to the nation state but based on the pooling of sovereignty and common interests. This is a very, very new and unique political entity which is neither a superstate nor um, a federal system nor the traditional loose alliance. What we see today is that Europe will face severe challenges, not only based on the crisis. The transformation, the redistribution of power, I think, is one of the huge challenges for Europe. In relative terms, we were on the losing side even before this world financial crisis happened. For example, my country is so proud that we are world champions in exports. I'm sure there are some here in the room which are not so happy about that. But definitely, since years, we are not any longer world champion in exports. It's an illusion based on the fact that we still 
count our export figures to France, to the UK, to the common market. California is not doing that. They don't see their exports in the US market as exports. So this reflects that Europe is uh, in a, a very precarious situation because we are very strongly integrated nowadays, especially with the common market and with the Eurozone. And the question whether the Eurozone will be a success story or disaster will have also very serious impacts for the non-members of the Eurozones and the non-members of the EU, say for example Switzerland. On the other hand, Europe is not integrated enough to act decisively. We have enlarged the European Union, but we don't have streamlined our institutions. We don't have a stronger common foreign policy, for example, so we cannot act decisively. We don't have a stronger security policy, so we can't act decisively. Even worse, with enlargement, it's more difficult to reach a compromise, not only in the substance, but also in time. And now, with the economic and financial world crisis, Europe is locked in between. The Constitution failed. The Lisbon Reform Treaty is in the limbo. We don't know whether the Irish will have another vote and how they will vote. We'll see. But if we look to the present situation, the contradictions in the European Union are growing substantially growing. If you look nowadays to the situation of the Eastern European countries, members and non-members, then there is a serious question mark whether the richer European economies understand the message that they must contribute that these economies can be refinanced because otherwise enlargement is in danger. I don't want to go into the details, ladies and gentlemen, but without a successful process of European enlargement, we will invite other powers to play games in a very unstable and insecure situation. So it's not only, I'm not talking only about the economy, I'm also talking about peace and security on the European continent. If you look to the growing spread between the Mediterranean countries and uh, the northern and central European economies. It's another serious danger which will hurt the future of the European currency if the leaders do not understand what the challenge which had to be addressed really is. 
And if you look to the last announcement of Nicolas Sarkozy, that if a French car maker produces in India for the Indian market, it's fine, but if a French car maker produces in Czechia for the French market, this must be changed. This means to start the chainsaw and get rid of the common market if this is his serious position. This is driven by bad results in uh, the polls. This is driven by minor politics, calculations, and so on. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. You will find the same. Uh, British government is uh, um, against protectionism, but devaluating the pound overnight for almo about almost 30%. Now, what does that mean for Ireland, for example? The German government is against protectionism, but looks mostly that our money stays at home in our own pockets. And so on, and so on, and so on. So my concern is that in these present developments, not only we see a shift of power from west to east, what we also see is that we are weakening ourselves as Europeans. And it's completely short-sighted, ladies and gentlemen, to believe that other powers will look for our interest in the future. They will do that as good friends and allies according to their own interests. And even if we are interested to balance the development in the US to go more and more into the Pacific direction. We can do that not by praising a great past of NATO, but creating a strong European pillar for NATO. America will follow its interests. And the question will be very simple. Can you deliver? then transatlanticism will have a future. If Europe cannot deliver or not deliver in time and deliver enough, then I predict huge problems. So we are in a process just now of self-weakening. And the discourse inside the European Union and the member states and the people and the public opinions is very different from the discourse outside of Europe. We are ignoring the basic facts. We are discussing uh, whether, well, we are creating super states or not, whether we should help Berlusconi with our good money or not. We are discussing historical problems whatsoever but we don't discuss our relative decline. And this is frightening, to be very frank. 
If you look to our neighborhood, and this is another big challenge, we see the Atlantic in the West and as long as the US is not applying for membership in the European Union. I don't see there a serious problem. One year ago, two years ago, I used to say, and Europe ends in the north where the polar bears live. Now, not based only on climate change, but there is an interconnectivity between climate change and the issue I mentioned now. This is more and more a region of concern because Russia is very ambitious in the region north of uh, the polar circle. Talking with Canadian friends, this is the issue in Canada. And they are very concerned what's going on. If you look to the east, we see we are not a huge continental island. There is Russia. And Russia is a big challenge and opportunity for us. I think from our point of view, we, on the one hand, overestimate the power of Russia. On the other hand, we are weakening ourselves in dealing with Russia. You will have remembered that uh, there is a difference. In the old days, Christmas time is defined by Christmas night. And before, we see Santa Claus coming. But since Putin took over, there is now a new Christmas event. When it's getting cold, it's a Santa Claus, which is named Gazprom, which is playing a new role in Europe. It sounds funny, but it's not funny. Because if you look to the basic facts, Russia depends more from Europe than Europe from Russia. Without European money, European expertise and experts, European investments, the modernization of Russia will be really questionable. But it's so simple. Because Russia can play the old divided impala game. I will give you an example. One day, and they are doing, uh, I mean, they are using the same procedure with companies, by the way, BP, for example, and some others. One day, the Russian government, not the government, the health authority, realized that meat from the European Union, which was produced in Poland, is a deadly danger for the Russian people. So it was banned. Of course, there was no health problem. Poland is part of the European Union, is implementing all the uh, rules, the relevant rules, um, was no problem. But this was step one. Step two was calculated by the Kremlin, an outburst of the Polish government, and the Poles vetoed any negotiations with the Russians until the Russians will take away this insulting attack against Polish meat. This was also planned. Step three, President at that time, President Putin, ordered the government plane and flew to Europe. 
signing bilateral agreements with different countries. So the European Union was divided. Nobody can block us to create an integrated European-wide gas market. It's only up to us. With a pipeline net which would include all the Europeans. This would be a message which would be understood immediately in Russia in the right way. Oops, the European got it. <laughs> we don't do that. There are ideological reasons. Even better, if you would have one commissioner in Brussels who were running our relationship, our energy, foreign energy relationship with third countries. This would be in the interest of the common market. This would be in the interest of all participants of these common markets. We are not able to agree for such an action. There are many others, but especially in dealing with Russia, ladies and gentlemen, my key problem is not Russia. My key problem is the inability of the Europeans to act together, define their interests, and confront Russia with the common European interests. Now, I said Russia is overrated. It's not the Soviet Union. If you look to the basic, to the basic facts, Russia is still in the decline. Russia with $140 per gallon oil is a power. Russia with $40 per gallon oil is at the brink. This makes a huge difference. So from my point of view, this is also a new opportunity for the West, and hopefully President Obama will understand that and push forward his European counterparts to develop common Western Russian position. Russia is underinvested, even in the oil and gas sector. They cannot keep the level of oil and gas production on the present level because they are underinvested. They have serious problems in their education system. They have one of the most serious demographic challenges the infrastructure is in a very bad condition, and even the military-industrial complex, which was one of the best or second best in the old days, is in a very serious decline. Nevertheless, Russia is a power, the second biggest nuclear power. So from my point of view, it would be wise to reopen the debate, and we never, not only as Europe, but also as West, answered the key question. I'm blaming myself for that. What should Russia's role in the new Europe be? This question is, was never answered, and must be answered. The NATO-Russian Council, I experienced that for many years, is not the answer, believe me. 
this is more, um, well, pushing the Russians on the sideline, be nice to them, but this means not serious business. To open up our minds and think about what there is a future that Russia could be one day part of the West because Russia cannot go alone in the 21st century based on the facts I just explained very roughly would be in the Western and definitely in the European interest. But on the other side, what we can never allow is that Russia will fall back into its imperial instincts and policies and designing zones of influence and anything like that. We must be pretty clear and tough that this will be never accepted from the West because otherwise our security situation on the European continent will change about 100% or even more. We have the Middle East, another big challenge, where I think the Europeans will pay an extremely high price. And if we define the Middle East not only as the Middle East, but including Afghanistan, Iran, and one of the coming major problems, the combination of a nuclear power and a failed state, Pakistan, if things are going badly, then it should be quite clear. This is our neighborhood. This is not the U.S. neighborhood. That's our neighborhood. If we are weak, we will not contribute to crisis control and crisis management. Once again, we will give our partners in that region the wrong incentives and definitely our enemies. And then let's have a short look to the south. Or before I will look to the south, let me mention another uh, alarming development, Turkey. Turkey is our biggest asset in this crisis region. In the Caucasian area, Central Asia, with Iran, in the Middle East, whether Turkey will be a success story in economic terms, as a success story as an example for modernization of a huge Islamic country into a modern society based on the rule of law with equal rights for men and women, with a modern civil society, yes or no, this is the key question for not only the Middle East, but for the Islamic world. Because if Turkey can demonstrate that modernity and Islam is not a contradiction, but the future for more than one billion Muslims, I think this would be a historic breakthrough to a better future. Well, we are losing Turkey nowadays. Turkey is turning its face to the east, not a re-Islamization, a re-Ottomanization is taking place. Turkey was disappointed by Europe. And now I look at your faces, 
I see what you are thinking. It's Merkel, Sarkozy, Austria, right? I will give you a fourth name. It's the UK too. Why? The UK is in favor of uh, the accession of Turkey to the EU. But the answer is very simple. By acting politicians, don't listen too much to the words. Look to the actions. Without a substantial institutional reform of the EU, any dream about the accession of Turkey to the EU is a non-starter. Forget it. Impossible. So either you are interested in the accession of Turkey, then you need a much stronger EU, or it will not happen. It will not, it will not happen. So both sides <coughs> contributed a lot to the alienation of Turkey. And we will pay a high price for that. Once again, it's a lack of strategic perspective for the European Union on behalf of the European Union. And the Americans will ask us, what will you do with Turkey? And the answer will be yes, well, we will try our best, <laughs> as usual. And if you look to the south with Africa, Africa is not a hopeless continent. Africa has understood much earlier than the Arab world how important the integration of interests will be, especially of security interests. When I came to Africa after the Kosovo War, everybody I met said, well, this uh, responsibility to protect is a new um, idea. Um, of the white man to suppress and limit our sovereignty. A few years later, after the disasters in West Africa, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, there was a completely different atmosphere. And the, a new organization, the African Union, was founded. It was understood that uh, this is not any longer the 19th or 20th century where sovereignty has not terribly ramifications if sovereignty means the right to massacre the own people. So there is a new understanding. Of course the African Union is weak and we should contribute new forms of cooperation to their strengthening, but it offers new opportunity and even in economic terms there is uh, in Africa you can see regions, states, where progress is visible, or was visible before the crisis happened. But ladies and gentlemen, one thing is quite clear. When Africa will start to export its conflicts in the 21st century, we will be the major address. And this is not an Italian, or a Spanish, or a Greek problem. It's not a Mediterranean problem. It's a European challenge. And the Mediterranean will not be deep enough and building fences will be in vain. What we need is a stronger European engagement there. That's also, I think, 
a wise form to invest in development and cooperation, a wise form of security policy in the 21st century. So our challenges are on the table. I think it's also not very complicated uh, to define the agenda, what must be done. Unfortunately, what we see today is that Europe is not in the shape to act decisively and address these issues in a productive way so that we can say the future will be also designed by the Europeans. We are not in a good condition. But I will end with some grim form of optimism. <laughs> Unfortunately, we Europeans were not able to do our homework voluntarily. We did it partly. Enlargement was very important. We tried the streamlining of the institutions. Unfortunately, we failed. And what we see in this crisis, even more important than the institution, was the spirit of the Constitution, the spirit of solidarity, the spirit that we belong together, that we don't keep our money back for us and deny decisive action to address the crisis, because then we have to give our money to others. The spirit that we can look over our national interests, not as an alternative, there's a European and here is a national interest. Europe is always the compromise. There is no European interest beyond the national interest. And 27 national interest means a compromise based on 27 national interests. Unfortunately, we were not able to preserve that spirit. But my grim optimism is based on the present crisis. If we don't do it voluntarily, history will beat up us, will beat up uh, the Europeans. And we will have a painful lesson. I'm sure that our leaders then will learn this lesson. Unfortunately, the price will be much higher than action based on strategic analysis and political will. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for that, and uh, I also particularly for the grim optimism uh, at the end. I sort of feared we were in completely Spenglerian territory, but uh, at least a stoic appeared at the end, perhaps, um, to lighten the mood. So what, what would be John Stuart Mill's answer to these uh, dark German thoughts here? <laughs> Uh, he'd tell you that it was I time read every day the Financial Times, yeah, not a German newspaper, and this is more gloomy than my speech tonight. <laughs>
I think John Stuart Mill would say it was time for a drink. Uh, <laughs> and usually our British response. Um, but um, <laughs> Wait, I like that. <laughs> But it isn't quite time for a drink for you. Um, so we do, have, uh, we do have some time for comments and questions. Uh, the microphones are uh, around, and perhaps um, you could say who you are when you comment. Um, and if I don't see a hand, I'm going to ask the uh, president of the German society who knows uh, where she is. No, hand here, right. <laughs> revolution that we've heard about against themselves. But it is no good, ladies and gentlemen, if you are offering the British and the European peoples the takeover of Europe by Asia or by Russia or by any of these other groups. It is no good at all. It's no good saying to the so Russian... Are we trending Arts, towards a question here? Yeah. Um. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but yeah, one right at the back. We'll take two or three. Right, right at the back there. Blue shirt or pullover, maybe. 
or hoodie maybe. Um, thank you very much for your talk. I just wanted to know whether you had any second thoughts or regrets or a different perspective on the role of, of the German government or your government in, um, in the Kosovo conflict. You mentioned that you had um, um, responses from Africa there which were very critical of, of um, the Kosovo intervention and I just wanted to know whether your perspective has changed over the years. No. <laughs> Another one. No, no, we'll take the take one down here. I think. Uh, <laughs> um, Mr. Fisher, you famously rejected uh, to take part in the Iraq War, but um, you thought it was a good idea to go to Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, now it still doesn't look um, particularly promising there. What do you think uh, needs to be done? May I have no? Yeah, sure. Answer. Um, uh, well. Um, I mean, I'm a European, but I can imagine that uh, in, uh, if, if someone from outside of Europe will listen to you, that uh, China will take over Europe or Russia or uh, whoever. Usually in history, as far as I'm informed, Europeans took over others and were not taken over by, um, by others. So, yeah, but I don't see uh, definitely, I mean, uh, it was more a European problem or a Franco-German problem. Once they took over us or tried it, then the other way around. And so for centuries, uh, we had this history of war. And I agree 100% that um, the biggest achievement of the EU is peace on the European continent. No question about that. But. Sorry, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really, as a former politician, I really enjoy now um, the freedom, not any longer, to give speeches where I'm talking around the existing problems, especially in these present crises. This is a defining moment for your future. In the next years, a new reality will be defined and uh, emerge. And whether Europe is ready to play its part, yes or no, is for me the key question. And it's not gloomy. It's, it has nothing to do with Spengler. I just said before, read daily the Financial Times, look to the figures, the developments, and you will see that the basic facts are moving in a direction which will not end uh, in the decline of uh, um, Occident, but we will be in a relative decline, as the US will be if they cannot make the turn around. So I'm not gloomy. My message is don't fool yourself any longer. This is my message. And it makes no sense. These, I'm, I'm also fed up with these summits where you have at the end a declaration, but this declaration is not implemented. Merkel, Brown, Sarkozy, um, Berlusconi, they are all in favor of uh, um, free markets and against protectionism. Sunday. 
Monday they go back to work, then they have their government meeting, and they decide exactly the opposite. This is not gloomy. That's the reality. You have to face the reality. Now, Kosovo, um, why should I? Should we have continued uh, the mess of the 90s? If, it, if the West wouldn't have intervened in Kosovo, then Macedonia would have been the next stop of the Balkan slaughterhouse. And with Macedonia, Bulgaria, Turkey, and Greece would be drawn directly into the military conflict because they all have high stakes in Macedonia. We would have had the configuration of the Macedonian wars immediately before the beginning of the First World War. So Milosevic was not ready um, to climb down from the tiger because he thought he will be eaten. It's a tragedy, but even today, when I have to blame myself, I have to blame m myself not because I was uh, in favor of going to war in Kosovo and on the Balkans, but I needed too much time for that decision. This is my self-criticism. Afghanistan was a must after 9-11 took place. 9-11, this was not a, a, a conspiracy or anything like that. It was Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden had its terror base in uh, uh, Afghanistan under the Taliban regime and uh, there was no alternative to do that. Why Bush went to Iran, uh, Iraq, this was a very bad idea. I was opposing it because I, I was really, I mean, uh, I thought the reasons were not uh, viable. So, um, what was the third question? You've done it. That was the three. I, I don't, this was yeah. the three. Okay. Uh, next so. one down here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. My name is Ulrich Beck. I'm a German sociologist and working at the LSE as well. And of course, we have, did have quite a few discussions. I'm quite concerned about the voice of Joska Fischer being so pessimistic about Europe nowadays. And even if I do agree, I think there has to be an opposition to, to this uh, uh, diagnosis. Save the world. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Especially in this context of the, of the British debate. I attended a conference a year ago, and the foreign, 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 uh, French foreign um, minister at Paris gave pretty much the same picture you gave now, lamentating about Europe not being able to solve its uh, main problems, and so on and so on, like, like we hear it all over uh, from European voices. And then extra-European uh, people stood up, intellectuals from America, from South um, Africa, from Asia, and so on, and said, what are those Europeans talking about? It's actually one of the enlightening model for all kind of problems we are involved in. The American way of handling things is not really working. And if there is... Um, a model 
for, uh, let me pick up this specific issue you are talking about. Interconnectedness, you say, is actually a big issue. And interconnectedness does have a lot of implications in relation to politics and the conceptualization of politics even. If there is a model for managing interconnectedness, it's actually the European model. Europe is actually, as, as you try to show, and if you, as you try to say on the one side, is actually the experience how we can pool sovereignties in order to enrich national sovereignty to solve problems. Europe did have the main issue of, of climate change as a basis for uh, a new development of, of modernity. Well, the Greens didn't pick it up as much as, as they should have in, in the German discussion. They didn't pick it up as a transnational issue. So I think, isn't there a big difference between the perspective of the European dilemma from inside of Europe and from the outside? Of course. From the outside, people are very much engaged about Europe. They want to be part of the <coughs> European context. This is the problem of Europe, that everybody wants to be part of of you, and isn't this a necessity to maybe okay. to some extent change the perspective of, of which you just uh, presented? <laughs> Look, it's. <laughs> now I have to limit myself. The applause provoked me. But you are right, of course. What a wonderful couple. What a wonderful couple yeah. from outside. But nobody knows what's going on inside when the couple is at home. <laughs> and, 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 the, the big problem is, and there is a difference to the French foreign minister, I never said that before. I am seriously concerned. I never thought that the European project as such, common market, the EU, the common market, and the euro um, could be in danger. I never thought that before. I'm not lamenting. I'm very concerned about the present situation. And uh, of course there are stumbling blocks, uh, the defeats in the referendums and so on. But this is important but minor. But what we see nowadays analyzing and watching very carefully what's going on, the European reaction on this world crisis, this is new. I mean, Europe will be always contradictory, it will be boring, it will be a, a confrontation about interests, but it, there was always, um, I mean, uh, a certain also emotion that at the end it's better, I mean, we reach a compromise. They will reach a compromise. I'm sure about that. But they underestimate uh, the tensions and the frictions. And uh, Ulrich Beck, I was, from my point of view, just the opposite of gloomy. What will happen if the lifestyle of the European middle classes is in danger? What will happen? This is a very, very serious question. Because then every government will be put under pressure to look to the very limited interests 
And this will, I think, uh, put a terrible strain on uh, European institutions and policies. So um, my appeal is, and I'm not campaigning for the European Parliament, so I don't have to give you um, a speech about my program. Um, I think it, it would be very, very important that it is understood that Europe is moving into very dangerous waters where I personally never have seen Europe before. That's my message. Saskia Sassen. Uh, this is Saskia Sassen from Columbia University in New York. I'm one of those outside admirers, you know, looking in from the outside. Um, you, you, said something, you said two things that I want to come back to because I think they are actually rather interesting and open up the question of what's next for Europe. One of them was that the EU right now cannot act decisively. And you also said that in a way Europe is a work in progress. Now, and that in other words, and, and that it could be moving towards a new type of format, not a nation state, et cetera, et cetera. Now there's a possibility. And that is that the current crisis, which is both economic, political, and sort of this mini European constitutional crisis, uh, that it might actually be what the EU needed to push itself forward into this new format. Because this new format, if it's not a state, is truly going to be an innovation. And it may just be what the world needs. We need larger scales. You know, we need, anyhow, if you could just Well, I agree 100% what you and Ulrich Beck said, that Europe is, I mean, uh, a real hope. It was a European invention the concept of the modern state, of state sovereignty. Um, Hobbes is one of, uh, I think, uh, uh, the key philosophers for developing that concept. It was based on the religious war, wars in uh, the 16th century and 17th century. Um, in the 20th century, with the decolonization, uh, the rest of the world, almost the rest of the world, took over the European state system. It was a form of political globalization that the European state system was then globalized and uh, the basic uh, values uh, and definitions um, were taken over by almost uh, the rest of the world. Even key ideologies uh, were developed uh, uh, in Europe. And uh, Europe... Uh, <coughs> almost destroyed uh, itself in two world wars in the first half of uh, the 20th century and uh, draw together with our American friends because the role of the two US governments is usually underestimated uh, by um, pushing forward uh, to a new state system uh, which then led to the forming of the EU. It was the Truman and Eisenhower administration so from both parties in the US, uh, who had uh, encouraged the Europeans, namely um, uh, Monet, uh, to move on with uh, his uh, idea of a new integration-based uh, state system. So um, yes, I agree, I agree. This is, this. if the Europeans will have uh, another success story, uh, it will be highly innovative and positive for the rest of the world. This is one side, but if you look to the present situation, um, I mean, 
maybe maybe I was too radical. Uh, Europe uh, by and then um, Europe can act decisively by and then by chance. So when Nicolas Sarkozy had the idea to invite the four big member states to Paris it was a bad idea. But then he drew the conclusions out of that and invited the Eurogroup plus Gordon Brown. When Brown came back to London, he was not tarred and feathered that he was uh, together with the Eurogroup. And uh, it was a great idea because it was inclusive. The UK was part of it. Um, and this was a moment of uh, where Europe demonstrated what it should be. But then immediately the reaction of my chancellor was, no, 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 the Eurogroup uh, will divide the European Union. Um, so, and, <coughs> and I mean, I'm not now blaming uh, Mrs. Merkel alone, do not misunderstand me. I could also name others, other situations. That's the way it will not work. So I'm experienced enough in the European business to say that's the way Europe works and we have to accept it. We must push hard, but at the end we are frustrated when we look forward, but when we look back we see, oh, we were quite successful. But then came this crisis and things are changing dramatically. Yeah, it might be good for the next phase. This is my grim optimism. Let's, let's get a couple of uh, younger voices in. Yes, yours. Uh, yeah. thank, you. thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, um, partly of which you said that you stressed the inclusion of emerging economies and states. But obviously a vital step for this would be a reform. A little bit louder. A uh, vital step would be the reform of the Security Council, including these emerging economies uh, more. So I was wondering whether you could see any light on that road moving away from this old Cold War stories. We'll take one more, and then I think that maybe have to be it. Uh, the, the chap, yeah, here, third row, just next to you. That's it. Thank you. Uh, Joschka Fischer, a couple of years ago you were in favour of a sort of core Europe of six or seven nations. Would no, you no, still no, no. be in favour of that or I did I get that <laughs> completely wrong at that time? You, now you, you, you mix me with Mr. Schäuble. I was not a core European, that Schäuble. I was uh, uh, in favour of enlargement, but enlargement uh, um, was only one side of the medal. The other side was uh, streamlining and deepening the institutions. Otherwise, uh, the European Union will face a setback, but I was never a core European. Now, your question. Um, the Security Council. Well. <laughs> That's a very delicate issue here in the UK. <laughs> now, I mean, it's quite clear. Um, the existing permanent members have no interest in a change. Obviously. Unfortunately. And Europe is a stumbling block. Because I've heard that uh, even in America, you can hear, we, we are the superpower. We have one permanent vote 
So why have you Europeans two permanent and three or four non-permanent votes? Should Wyoming, Iowa and uh, uh, also have a, a vote? Um, I mean, the Asians, the Africans, all of them asking the same questions. Um, I can't give you an answer for that. There I say this is a European reality, you have to deal with that. But I know this is a very weak answer. You feel my reluctance to give you a more detailed <laughs> answer. <laughs> so, but you are right. Security Council reform uh, will be a must if you think about a new world order. Uh, this cannot be frozen forever on the level of 1945. To be quite frank, I was in favor for a German seat, but forget that. No, it will never happen. It, there was a small window of opportunity, but it's done. So um, I have some ideas about that, but this would be too provocative, so um, I'm thinking now about a good drink. And, uh, <laughs> thank um, you very much. Well, thank you very much for that. And I think we, we do have to wind up. It is uh, 8 o'clock. If I may say so, referring back to what I said about former politicians, I'm absolutely delighted you left office. Um, uh, because, uh, and I... You appreciate the positive sense in which I say that. Thank you very much. And also thanks to Richard Sennett uh, for sponsoring tonight's uh, event. And uh, thank you all for some very interesting questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.